Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. As we begin to think about Christmas, the obvious thing that I feel confronted with this year in particular is, what was God thinking when he had his son born in a stable, right? You ever wonder that? I mean, of all the places in all the world, and obviously it was carefully choreographed, why would he have had him born in a stable? And what's up with that whole manger thing? This came home to me really more acutely this year because of an experience I had with a friend of mine. I, I was texting back and forth. He's a longtime friend, and um, he wasn't replying, which is unusual for him. And then finally, he replied back and said, I'm in Paris with my family attending a wedding. And my first reply back was, who gets married in Paris? And he said, I've got a friend. His son is getting married in Paris, and it's a really extravagant wedding. He said the rehearsal dinner is at an opera house. Um, The wedding itself is at a chateau, and Maroon 5 is the wedding band. And then he sent me pictures. Here's a picture of the place where the ceremony was held. I know. I saw that and had a slight panic attack over just the cost of the flowers. Here's a picture of where the rehearsal dinner was. It's kind of an opulent wedding. And this, this is a picture of, of the chateau outside uh, where they did it all. Um, those pictures hit social media after the wedding, and it became known as the wedding of the century. The Independent in UK actually ran a story on it. Here's kind of a, a cover of the article of that story. And in it, it said, a rehearsal dinner at the Palais Garnier, an overnight stay at the Palace of Versailles, a private lunch at Chanel, and the Bachelorette Week at a five-star luxury resort in Utah. As videos of Brockway's lavish wedding flooded TikTok feeds over the weekend, one person dubbed the event as, quote, the most stunning wedding in the world. Many others gushed over Brockway's lush floral arrangements in her private Maroon 5 concert. But a majority of users couldn't help but wonder, how much did the nuptials cost? And an article came out later that week that said they're saying now that it costs 50 million English pounds, which is 59 million American dollars. And my first thought was, all of you poor dads who have daughters, you better start saving right now because the cost just went up exponentially. And then I thought, you know, with that money, $59 million on a wedding, you could take $58 million and change the lives of 58 people forever and still spend a million dollars on your daughter's wedding. And the extravagance of it and the opulence of it, um, it's hard to get around, you know. And then I thought, you know, this girl became instantly famous, not for anything that she did, not for any contribution that she made to the world, but simply because of the amount of money that her father spent on her wedding. And I thought about this for several days, the opulence, the excess. And then I thought about Christmas and the contrast just cannot be more stunning. Because I realized, you know, Jesus could have done it like that, couldn't he? I mean, God the Father could easily outspend anybody we know. I read recently that there's an asteroid floating through our solar system that they call 16 Psyche, 
And according to Forbes, 16 Psyche contains a core of iron, nickel, and gold worth $10,000 quadrillion. I don't even know what a quadrillion is. It sounds made up to me. It sounds like a, a bazillion or a, a grillion, a quadrillion. What's 10,000 quadrillion? Well, it's plenty to spend on a birth announcement, I'll tell you that. And he could have, he could have had this splashy birth. Um, he could have covered, you know, the Middle East in flowers and yeah, done all of the work to get all of the likes, views, and followers. And it wouldn't have even affected his net worth, right? And here's my point. Jesus could have been born famous, but he was born forgotten. And you know, when you back up and you just sort of let that rest, you, you got to ask yourself why. Like I said up front, uh, what's up with the whole manger thing? I mean, a manger is simply spiritualized romantic language for a feeding trough. That's where Jesus spent his first night on earth. And, and it's like, what's up with that? Well, let's go back to the Bible, Luke chapter 2, and let's, let's try to draw out of it the insight that God wants you and I to embrace, not only in our understanding of Him, our theology, but in how we apply that to our lives, our biology. Luke chapter 2, I want to read it in the King James, um, because I, I think Luke 2 should be in the King James. I, I know... King James is a great version of the Bible, but it was written in 1611, and, you know, we just don't talk like that anymore, and it's difficult. Sometimes you got to translate it from the old English into the English before you can even understand it. So, you know, I rarely use King James, but not when it comes to the birth announcement, it's got to be done. And it came to pass. See, we don't use language like that anymore. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So Augustus is the Caesar who immediately followed Julius Caesar. He is the emperor of the Roman world. And one of the first things he did, he was an analytical mind. He was a, a, a person who liked to construct systems. He wants to raise taxes. And in order to do that, he's got to find out all the people he has and who he's going to tax. So it's a census taxes tied together, right? Now, if you're living in that time, which would have been about 4 B.C., some say 6 B.C., we got the calendar wrong. You know, Jesus was actually born four years before Christ, B.C., which is, you know, it's hard to do, but some bishop got it wrong. It's 4 B.C., right? And so if you're living in that time, especially in Palestine, anywhere in the, in the Roman world, all you're talking about is Caesar Augustus and his tax. You're not talking about anything else. Because number one, he's going to make you get up from wherever you are and go to the place of your family origin. They're not bringing census takers into your village. You've got to go to them. And you've got to justify who you are and what your family lineage is and what is the place of your birth. So everybody's on the move. And in addition to that, you're on the move, not because everybody's going to celebrate Thanksgiving, or have a Merry Christmas. You're on the move in order that the Romans can take more of your money out of your pocketbook. So everybody's moving, everybody's mad, and the only thing they're talking about is Augustus. Now, God could have had 
Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem for a variety of reasons. I mean, they had to go to Bethlehem because, you know, the Messiah, Micah 5, 2, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. He could have done that a different way, and yet he chose to use the census to move this little poor Galilean family from Nazareth in the north all the way about 70, 80 miles down to Bethlehem, and, and that's where Jesus would ultimately be born. But for whatever reason, he did it at the moment when the whole world was focused on something else. If you want to bury a story, if you want nobody to hear about something, then do it when the whole world is thinking about something else. For example, September 11, 2001, what else happened on that day? Do you know? I literally did a Google search to try to find out what else happened on September 11, 2001, and couldn't find anything. So imagine if you're born September 11, 2001, nobody knew. In fact, you may not even know. And that made me, how many of you, was anybody in here born September 11, 2001? Anybody? See, that's proof. Even the people that were born that day, they don't know. They don't, I don't know. I was, you know, I was just born. I don't have a birthday because the World Trade Centers fell that day, so nobody knows. Isn't that interesting that God would have put the birth of Jesus on the very moment that the whole world was in flux and angry with the emperor of the world so that the story would be completely buried? Verse 2, and the taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And there, there it is. And, and, you know, there's a beautiful side of this because uh, you had to go to the village of your birth, right? And so Mary and Joseph both have to go to Bethlehem because they were both of the house and lineage of David. And the prophecy had said that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And so you get this beautiful validation of the prophetic utterance over who Jesus is. And so because David was born in Bethlehem, that's where they wind up. And it's pretty cool. And also Micah 5, 2 said that's where he would be born. So verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. Remember, uh, Jesus wasn't Joseph's. Jesus was Joseph's stepson. But there was a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And he was, he was uh, with Mary, his spouse wife. And I love this line, being great with child. You know, that's so much more beautiful than saying just a big old pregnant woman. You know, she was great with child. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, again, the language is just beautiful. The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Which, by the way, women, isn't that a beautiful way of describing birth? It doesn't say that the baby would be born. It said she would be delivered. She was delivered from pregnancy. Isn't that awesome? And there's a deliverance there, isn't there? And there's nothing like a donkey ride about 70, 80 miles to get that pregnancy thing working, <laughs> right? You know, my son, Matthew, uh, my son Andrew was born a month early. You know why? Because I took a revival in deep east Texas the week before he was born. And the roads there are dirt roads made out of washboard. And so we'd go over those roads, and by the end of the week of revival, when we got home, Amy was ready to be delivered. And so, so it was that while we were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And Andrew was born. 
70 miles on a donkey will do that too. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. There it is, a feeding trough. And usually they were carved out of stone, by the way, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. It's, you know, it's one thing to place the future of mankind in the hands of, of a couple of cripplingly poor Galilean peasants. But all of this was divinely orchestrated. This is a birth that was planned 2,000 years in advance, and in truth, probably planned before the foundation of the beginning of the world, that God would come to earth to rescue people from their own sin. You know, because God desires that relationship with us. He made us for that relationship. And when you read the book of Genesis, you see that relationship of God and man together in the garden. But then sin enters the picture and it corrupts what God had designed. And God knew that in advance. And so for a couple of thousand years, He gives us the law to, to make us aware of the demands of righteousness and holiness. And then when the time is right, His Son enters the world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the one who was without sin became sin on our behalf and substituted, took our punishment upon Himself on the cross. That was the whole plan. And it was orchestrated from the beginning. But the crazy part is that a part of the plan wasn't this massive splash of internet activity uh, with flowers and, and expensive singers and all of that other stuff. But he buried the story in the one thing that the whole world was talking about. And then he put his son in the most obscure place in the world and had him born in the most humble circumstances. And then he invited the shepherds. Look at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds biding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. We talked about this before. The shepherds were about the bottom of the, of the socioeconomic ladder because, you know, they smelled like sheep. Shepherds were notorious as pickpockets and thieves. They weren't even allowed to testify in the court of law. And by the way, the shepherds that were invited were at the bottom of the shepherd socioeconomic scale. You talk about... You know, the, the, the law of, of uh, 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 social ladders, uh, they're at the very bottom of it. Because where are they? What time is it? It's nighttime. These are the graveyard shift guys. These guys are pulling the shift nobody else wants. So it's with shepherds, even among shepherds, they had no pull. And the angel appears to them. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And I love this line. And they were sore afraid. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome. They were sore afraid. They were so afraid they were sore. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of, a, of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you shall... And, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You know, nobody deserved a more extravagant birth, but few people can recall a humbler beginning. The most important birth in the history of the world happened in the quietest and most humiliating way. Why wasn't Jesus' birth 
more conspicuous. And I think maybe it's because store-bought fame is fading. You know, that wedding, $59 million worth, is already last week's news. And few will ever remember it. Those that do were probably there. But the, for the rest of us, it's going to someday be, hey, you remember that guy that spent all that money in Paris on that wedding? That'll be the most for a brief period of time, and then it'll be completely forgotten. A friend who was at, my friend who was at the wedding made this interesting insight. He said the most poignant moment of the wedding was leaving that morning and seeing all the wilted flowers in the hotel. It shows that it was only temporary and the flash fades. He said, probably a sermon in there somewhere. I said, yeah, there sure is. Consider the contrast. They paid a fortune to announce their wedding to the world, and nobody will remember them. But Jesus was born in complete obscurity, and we're still talking about him today. You know what that tells me? Store-bought fame fades. And I, I think God the Father certainly knows that. Maybe his purpose wasn't to attract attention, but to build disciples. Maybe God's not after likes and internet followers. He's after followers who are committing their lives to him. And so maybe he's after more than what you'd get with a big splashy show. But maybe instead of trying to impress us, he wanted to relate to us. I mean, I, th I think there's real truth here. Could it be that this whole manger thing was so Jesus could be approachable? Here's the thing about it. You're God. You're sovereign. You're creator of the universe. You have this extraordinary power, and you're going to wrap yourself in human skin. How in the world would people ever feel comfortable enough with you to approach you if you came in any other way? And so it really comes back around to that relationship and the approachability of it. Here's the thing. I get really nervous at big, splashy, formal settings. And I'm pretty sure I would have felt really awkward and out of place at that wedding. You see, I'm too busy worried about doing something wrong. Are you, are you with me on that? The more formal it gets, the more concerned I am about making a mistake. Because it seems to me that in formal settings, you can't do anything good. You can only do something wrong. And I'm notorious for sitting in the wrong place, saying the wrong thing. And so I'm going to be sitting there somewhat awkwardly hoping that I don't stand out, uh, fearing that I'm going to use the wrong fork for dessert. My worst nightmare is to be the unintended guest. Are you with me? I'm the guy that the one thing I don't want to do is sit where I'm not supposed to be. And y'all, I have done that. I think I've told this story before. It may be my most embarrassing moment of my life. Chuck Swindoll was going to be inaugurated as the president of Dallas Seminary, and I was a student at Dallas Seminary at the time, and Chuck Swindoll was one of my icons. I really loved what he did, looked up to him, learned from him, read his books. I probably read 30 Swindoll books. And so when he's going to be inaugurated as the president, a couple of my friends in my church said, let's go. I'm like, okay, let's go. It's at 
Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas. We go down there. We get there early. And when we get there, uh, there are ropes in almost all of the sections that are anywhere near the platform. And uh, so we're like, oh, well. And they, they say, you're going to have to sit in the balcony. So we're up in the balcony, and a, a nice usher comes by and says, look, they're going to drop the rest of, of the ropes here in just a little bit. I'll, I'll give you a heads up, and you can come down. And so uh, soon later on, the ropes drop, and you know the four of us come down from the balcony, and and uh, my my three buddies found a spot somewhere right over in here at Preston Wood. It was kind of in a wing right there, a little bit further back, and and they're like, here here's some four seats, come on. And I'm like, I noticed that right about the third row, there are four seats just right there. And I'm like, whoa 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 whoa, here's some really good ones, you know. And they're like. They, they sense something that I missed. And I'm like, no, come on, come on, come on. And so we come over and we kind of squeeze in third row. And uh, I, could, I, I knew right away we were in tall cotton because the suits around us just, you could tell, there's a fit and quality to them. It's way above our pay grade. They didn't buy those suits at Sears. And uh, just right in front of me was Tom Landry, the famous coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I could have rubbed his bald head. Uh, James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, was like into the, into the pew right there. And uh, Norm Miller of Interstate Batteries, you know, he had the whole NASCAR thing. He was right there in front. I was like, man, we're in tall cotton. And uh, then this couple comes in, and they're looking for a seat, and they, she's kind of mad, you could tell. And she sort of squeezes in in front of us, and they're sort of crammed in, and she looks over her shoulder at us. And I'm like, hey, lady, you want good seats? Get here early. You know? And it's super formal. There's two grand pianos on the stage, and they're playing some Tchaikovsky or something. And then here comes all of the presidents of the universities in America, or a lot of them, like Harvard and Yale, and they're in full regalia. They come down the middle, they go up in the choir area. It's really formal. A couple of people speak, and then Swindoll comes to the platform, and he goes, you know, you don't have great seminaries without great trustees. And Dallas Seminary's got great trustees, and I just want to recognize our trustees. If you're a trustee, would you please stand? And he points right at us, and everybody around us stood up. <laughs> and I died about a thousand times right there, just died. Turns out that lady... We were in her chair. <laughs> so, and you know, I think sometimes, I hope heaven's not like that. You know, sometimes I, when you think about it, I, I, I kind of worry. I mean, am I going to look around and go, do I really belong here? I mean, I, I, I know I get it saved by grace, but think of the people that are going to be there. Have you ever taken the time to do that? I mean, people of renown, the great missionaries like Lottie Moon and William Carey and Amy Carmichael and Jim Elliott, and then the brilliant theologians like John Calvin and Martin Luther and others, and, you know, the preachers, the real preachers like John Knox and the Wesley brothers and Spurgeon, and, and then there's the scientists like Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal, the inventors like Samuel Morris and you know, sports figures and politicians and men and women of industry and greatest people and the brightest people in the world. The people that, you know, the book of Hebrews says, people of whom the world wasn't worthy. C. 
C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, Billy Graham, Chuck Colson, Lewis Sperry Chafer, George Washington Carver, Florence Nightingale. And we haven't even started to talk about the biblical characters like Abraham and Moses and Aaron and Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. David, I think it's going to be hard to get near David. And Peter and Paul and James and Rahab and Mary and all the other Marys and Simon of Cyrene and, and you know, and then I walk in. And suddenly I'm back at that crowded church seated in that section where I didn't belong. Is somebody going to walk over to me and say, oh, Mr. Dye, look, I'm sorry. I'm, I mean, I know you're here by grace. We, we had to let you in. But you're in the roped off section. You're, see, way back there. No, not that. Beyond that. Way back there. That's where you are. But then I remember the manger. I remember the manger. Jesus wasn't coming for the best and the brightest. He wasn't coming to impress the super rich or generate a million Instagram followers. He was coming to rescue us. And to do that, he had to be approachable. Henry Scogel, the old 17th century Scottish minister said, God hath long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. Hmm. Here's what that whole manger thing means to me. It means, first of all, God was seeking us in the least conspicuous way so that we would know that we belong with him. And you know what that means to me? That means no matter what I've done, no matter how far I've fallen, no matter who I am or, or what my limitations are, I belong with Him. And so do you. And don't let anybody ever tell you anything else. You belong with Him. He came for you. And he came in the most approachable way so that you would know that. And if you've never given your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and died to yourself and just said by faith, you know, God, thank you for the gift of grace that's offered because of Jesus on the cross. Thank you that he came as he did so that I would know that he came for me. And I give my life to you fully. If you've never done that, what are you waiting for? Why would you walk out of this place the way you came in? Why isn't today the appointed day of your transformation and your salvation? And in just a minute, I want to pray and give you the opportunity to give your life to Christ. And I want to encourage you to take up that gift that was offered in the manger. But you know, the manger is not just for our salvation. It's for our example too. You see, those of us who have embraced Christ by faith have also been called to something higher than what we are doing. You see, the same humility that we saw in Jesus in the manger is the same humility that the world needs to see in us right now. There's no room for posturing and, and uh, parading and 
pompous and all of that other stuff. There's no room for that in Christ because when God calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, he bids him come and die. And so we die to ourselves. We die to the life we were going to live. We, we have been crucified in Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And I live that same humility that makes me approachable because the Jesus in me is what I want them to see more than anything else. And I want them to know that Jesus is approachable too. So I don't have the right to judge or condemn or, or any of that stuff, but I have the right to have the calling to love as God loved and to walk in humility as he walked. And I want to give you a chance to recommit to that too. You see, we serve a God who was born in a stable and laid in a manger. And that's no accident. He wants you to know you can belong to Him. But those of us who belong to Him, He wants us to see how we should then live. Would you pray with me right now? If you don't belong to Jesus, here's your prayer. Father, I just give my life to you. I cry out to you right now. And I just ask you to change my life in this moment. I give myself fully over to you. You are my Lord. Father, thank you for salvation that comes through Jesus. Thank you that we know we belong. And Father, those of us who know you, we're going to make this recommitment here today, especially at the front end of this Christmas season that the same humility that we saw in the manger, we want people to see in us because it's not so much that we want to be approachable, but we want the Jesus in us to be approachable. And so, Father, we once again declare to you, we will die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow. And we thank you for the privilege of walking in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.